Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I'm Kathy with a C. And I'm Kathy with a K. Here's to season three of Killer Destinations. We hope everybody had a happy and fun new year. We are going to begin the year with updates from some of the cases we've done over the past 12 months. We're going to give a little bit of background for each of the cases. We have three of them. So if you want to listen to the details of each of these, go back and listen to the episodes first, then roll the updates. We are going to be doing updates on episode 71, which is the Koberger case. Episode 81, which is the Oscar Pistorius Rivestein Camp case. And episode 112, which is the Suzanne Morphew case. Here we go. Brian Koberger and the University of Idaho murders. Almost exactly one year ago, so December 30th, 2022, Pennsylvania State Police Emergency Response Team arrested then 28-year-old Brian Christopher Koberger at his parents' home in Monroe County. He was charged with burglary and four counts of first-degree murder in the November 13, 2022 stabbing deaths of four University of Idaho students, Zana Kernodal, Ethan Chapin, Madison Mogan, and Kaylee Gonzalez. And by the way, burglary was one of the felonies, obviously, I just mentioned, and burglary is not necessarily a theft crime. It's the unlawful entry into a dwelling place with the intent to commit a felony. But there was no indication that he had taken anything from the home, correct? Correct. So he probably is charged with burglary for his intent to go commit murder inside. So it could be any felony. As background, when the 2022 school year began at the University of Idaho, Five girlfriends moved into off-campus housing together on King Road. The house was three stories with two bedrooms and a bathroom on each of the three floors. 21-year-olds Madison and Kaylee have rooms together on the third floor. 20-year-old Zana and 21-year-old Dylan Mortensen had rooms on the second floor. And 21-year-old Bethany Funk had a room on the first floor. The five roommates, plus Zana's boyfriend Ethan were at home by 2 a.m., so this is the early morning hours of November 13th, and likely asleep by 4 a.m., except for Zana, who we know was awake at 4 a.m. because she received a DoorDash order. At almost noon the next day, police received a 911 call. Responding officers found the three girls and Ethan stabbed to death. Bethany and Dylan were not attacked, but Dylan told police she saw a masked individual inside the house and later was able to provide detectives with a critical description. And Kath, during the course of this investigation, more than 300 interviews have been conducted by investigators, and this included the Moscow Police Department, the Idaho State Police, and the Federal Bureau of Investigation, who the Moscow PD asked to come in and help with what they were doing, which I think in our episode, I can't remember exactly, but I'm pretty sure we gave them a lot of credit for it at the time, and if we didn't, we should have. Because you know it's always hard for police agencies to ask for external help. There's such a jurisdictional issue there. But the fact that they reached out so quickly to the Idaho State Police and the FBI really showed how important it was to them to get this solved and get justice for these girls. Totally. And after reviewing the court file, it is very clear that Moscow police were working their wazoos off. Exactly. 
And we go over in the episode how Koberger was captured. I'm sure all of you guys remember posts about the white Elantra. They got video surveillance from the surrounding area trying to identify the driver of this white Elantra. Also, they had DNA from a knife sheath. It was sort of wedged under Maddie and her comforter. And that DNA was obtained by the Idaho State Police. It was run through CODIS and there was nothing in the federal database. So what the Idaho State Police did was they engaged a private genetic genealogy company like Ancestry or 23andMe. And these people started developing a genetic profile on a family tree. Well, the FBI comes in and says, thank you very much. We're going to take that over. So they did the genetic genealogy, ultimately giving Brian Koberger's name to the Idaho State Police and the Moscow PD. And we had thought at the time that this was because the FBI didn't really want to trust this to an outside private firm. And because they had the capability of doing it, they wanted to keep it within the law enforcement community. Right. But there was no real explanation no, as to why they wasn't. pulled it from a private company. Anyway, We're just speculating as exactly, we want to do. As we like to do. So they needed a DNA sample to confirm it was Brian Koberger. They got a DNA sample from his parents' trash in Pennsylvania, and it was a close familial match. So they arrested him. And bing, bang, bong, he was arrested. Bing, bing, bong, he was arrested. Just like magic. There have been a couple of events since we told you about the case almost a year ago. Koberger waived his right to a speedy preliminary hearing. Of course, the preliminary hearing is just to see if there's sufficient evidence to hold a defendant over for trial. And it was then set to be held in June. However, this preliminary hearing never happened. Rather than holding this hearing, the prosecutors instead decided to proceed by way of a grand jury and an indictment for murder was handed down against Brian Koberger in May of 2023. Which, Kath, I'm sure was a disappointment to the press because grand juries are done in total secrecy. Right. And of course, there's a court order in this one. Nobody can find out any of the grand jurors' names. A preliminary hearing would have been very public and a bit of a circus. In some of the cases we've done, grand jury leaks can be common. In this case, it wasn't. Yeah. It was interesting that it was kept very close to the vest. Now, at the outset, in order to preserve Koberger's right to a fair trial, the judge placed a gag order on the case including attorneys representing parties, victims, or witnesses from discussing the case. Media outlets made motions to unseal certain documents, and Kaylee Gonzalez's family attorney tried getting access to all pleadings and requested that he and his clients be allowed their First Amendment right to speak publicly on the matter. The judge has so far declined any invitations to weaken his gag order. Yeah, I think the attorneys still have duct tape residue on their lips. <laughs> or, or the duct tape exactly. itself. <laughs> but one thing the judge did do, and it appears to be at the request of the Gonzalez family attorney, was unseal the record regarding a potential conflict of interest that was brought to the court's attention. Yeah, so Kat, the Gonzalez family became aware um, when they were having a meeting with a prosecutor one day that there had been a conflict of interest hearing regarding the public defender, Ann Taylor. Not to be confused with the clothing, clothing mobile. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the Gonzalez family was like, what the heck? We want to know about this. And so their attorney said, Your Honor, would you please unseal the records? Blah, blah, blah. He filed a bunch of paperwork and bing, bing, boom. The judge said, okay. Anyway, the record was unsealed, although it was redacted. So you couldn't read it, you know, in its original Most form. Of it, but yeah. you, you got the substance. And so what happened was a lot of information had come out in the media against the public defender, Ann Taylor, saying that one of the victims, Zana Kernodal, had a mom who was involved in the criminal justice system, shall we say, and had been represented by the public defender. And then the media was questioning, did this pose a conflict of interest? 
And so what we learn when the judge unsealed the court minutes, we learned that Zana's mom had a felony case pending, but once the Koberger case arose, they conflicted out, meaning the public defender's office gave it away to a lawyer who could represent her interests. A private lawyer, correct? I would assume it was a private lawyer, but I don't know for sure. Okay. They also learned that the same individual, Zana's mom, had an old misdemeanor case that had been sentenced but was still sort of hanging around. So they were in the process of getting rid of that as well. But the public defender essentially said, my name is on every single pleading that comes out of the public defender's office because I am the public defender. However, underneath my name is the handling attorney. And there were two handling attorneys on Mrs. Kernodal's case that have since left the public defender's office. So the public defender informed the court that she did not ever have contact with Zana's mother. She offered no legal advice. She had not touched the file per se. And no interaction with the mother either. Exactly. And so the judge was confident that she did not have divided loyalties. But really, the issue is, does Brian Koberger perceive that Ann Taylor had any divided loyalties? So he was present in court and he said, yep, I still trust her. I want her as my counsel, et cetera, et cetera. Everything is good. And one of the things that was said in the court's minutes was that Ms. Taylor represented to the judge that most of what she read in the media about herself was totally incorrect. Not surprising. Yeah, not surprising. And it was pointed out during this hearing that the public defender had consulted with the State Bar Council's ethics office. Everything was, you know, love and roses and everybody left the courthouse giving each other big hugs and smiles all around. <laughs> Actually not, but you know. <laughs> but sure, we'll put that in our head. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's clear from the court records that this is a very IT-driven case. Although none of the information obtained from the search warrants is viewable in the court records, there are dozens of sealed or redacted search warrants on file. It appears most had been executed near the time of the murders by Moscow police forensic detective Lawrence Mowry. The warrants included things like AT&T, Google, Meta platforms, which could be Facebook or Instagram, TikTok, Tinder, K-Bar records. The sheath for a K-Bar knife was what was found underneath Maddie Mogan's body and the comforter. DoorDash, eBay, Wells Fargo, Walmart, UPS, Reddit, a couple of banks, Yik Yak, which I had no idea what that was. <laughs> I know, and nor did I. I was like, Kathy, what is Yik Yak? And she's like, I don't know. So we looked it up on the Google. <laughs> and then bing, bang, bong, we had an answer. Exactly. <laughs> Just like magic. This is a social media smartphone application that initially launched in 2013 and then relaunched in 2021. And it allows college students to create and view discussion threads within a five mile radius. That is their version of having a flyer for a party. Exactly. You know, and then just ballparking, Kath, there were probably 60 warrants for these kinds of items. Yeah. Detective Maori had major overtime oh, as a result of this case. When I was looking through the stuff, every single warrant that I looked at was signed by him. Yes. Once Koberger was arrested and his public defender assigned, there was a lot of discovery handed over in this matter. The defense has made at least 11 discovery requests, which I'm sure is because of the technical nature of the case. There's all the digital evidence plus the DNA evidence, and we fully expect that there will be even more requests in the future. The first discovery request out of the box was like, a, give us everything in the kitchen sink, you know, all sorts of, you know, video, phone, data, internet, blah, 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 for all the defendants, co-defendants, witnesses, you know, give me my defendants prior records, give me expert witness report, digital media, search, blah, 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 blah. 
What we know from this first response was that the defense received just under a thousand pages of documents and nearly 2,000 photos as well as video. All of these documents were submitted under seal and not revealed to the public, of course. But that is just a small sample of the intensive documentation that is going to be attended to this case. Also, an interesting thing that happened in Idaho, statutes provide that defendants who assert an alibi must disclose a specific location and specific witnesses. In July, the prosecution filed a motion to compel the defense to disclose whether or not they were using an alibi defense or that they be precluded from calling alibi witnesses later. So basically, the prosecution said, we tried to get this information from the defense, but they haven't really given it to us. I actually, Kath, read the defense's response, and it was a total like response with a non-response. It was like, we are working diligently on discovery, and we do not have that information yet, but we expect to call alibi witnesses. We just don't know who they are. The prosecution files this motion, and the defense filed an objection to the state's motion. And all of this was filed in August of 2023. It was the first time in writing that we know what the defense is going to say. And the defense stated, I'm quoting this, Mr. Koberger has long had a habit of going for drives alone. Often, he would go for drives at night. He did so late on November 12th and into November 13th, 2022. Mr. Koberger is not claiming to be at a specific location at a specific time. At this time, there is not a specific witness to say precisely where Mr. Koberger was at each moment of the hours between late night November 12, 2022 and early morning November 13, 2022. He was out driving during the late night and early morning hours of November 12 to 13, 2022. The defense's objection goes on to say, corroboration of Brian Koberger not being at 1122 King may be brought out through cross-examination of the state's witnesses. At this time, Mr. Koberger cannot be more specific about the possible witnesses and exactly what they will say. So it's kind of like circular reasoning or trying to prove a negative, but basically the defense is saying, look, he has an alibi. He was out driving by himself. We expect that there's going to be people to testify to this. We just don't know who they are. Well, it's kind of like the burden rests on you, prosecution, to prove he was there. We don't have to prove he wasn't there. That's true. And so what they're saying is on our cross-examination of your prosecution witnesses, we will probably be eliciting alibi evidence that he was not at the murder scene. But we don't know who these people are yet. And then they actually threw shade at the prosecution. They said, we don't know who these people are because you never had a preliminary hearing. At a preliminary hearing, we would have been able to cross-examine your witnesses. But you had a secret hearing with a grand jury, and we weren't there to cross-examine. We are now reading their transcripts, and some of these people might help us alibi, but we don't know who yet. So no alibi witnesses right now. Correct. But it's the first time, as far as I know anyway, that the defense admitted that he was out driving around at the operative time frame. The latest document filed by the prosecution was on December 21st. This is just a couple of weeks ago, and it was a request for the court to set a briefing schedule. The prosecution expects a six-week trial and suggested summertime. This is because Moscow High School is adjacent to the courthouse and the volume of media and other vehicles have already strained available parking as well as created safety and convenience issues for pedestrians, including students. 
and with the universities not in session, more lodging would be available to anybody who wanted to attend the trial. Prosecution asked for a timeline with discovery deadlines, jury questionnaires, motions in limine, expert witness disclosures, and on and on. They also want trial to end at 3 p.m. every day. Initially, the judge, by the way, the judge's name is John Judge. I know. I love that. Judge Judge. Exactly. (laughs) You know, when he was born, they're like, you're going to be a judge, whether you like it or not, buddy. (laughs) And it worked. Exactly. The power of positive thinking. Or, you know, parents forcing you to do something you didn't want to do. Living up to your name's expectations. (laughs) Exactly. Initially, Judge Judge allowed cameras in the courtroom, but ordered media outlets not to focus exclusively on Koberger during filming. On August 24th of this year, the defense team filed a motion to remove cameras from the courtroom. They wrote, Camera-wielding courtroom observers have failed to obey the court's June 27th directive to cease focusing exclusively on Mr. Koberger. To the motion, the public defender attached photos taken in the courtroom of her client that had been disseminated in the media. She said he was being prejudiced by the media coverage and that the media was violating Judge Judge's orders. Which, when you saw what she attached in her motion, you totally agree. Yeah, absolutely. People took snippets of him where he just looked like, you know, whatever. It's like tabloid journalism at its worst. That's exactly what it was. And so she attached like Twitter posts and, you know, whatever, tabloid journalism articles, essentially. And typically, they're also going to put out there the most unflattering photos that make him look like dastardly and evil. Exactly. In mid-November, the court ruled that audiovisual coverage of any proceedings in this case will be exclusively done by the court. Media and the public will not be allowed to video, photograph, audio record, or otherwise transmit during any of the proceedings. So going forward, Latah County, where Moscow is located, has set up YouTube channels for certain departments. So all future public hearings in this case will be video recorded, and that live video stream will be available to the public and media to view on the court's YouTube channel. Kath, why are so many dogs now suffering from health issues? Actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, said she's seeing more issues with joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she discovered is actually the way many dog foods are made can create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many of the premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw a huge transformation in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. And Kath, as you know, we have a schnauzer named Ollie. And even though my husband insists he is not, he is overly flatulent. (laughs) (laughs) After I started giving him this food, I swear there was a reduction in his smell. I love that. And I'll come over to your house now. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well, and you know, we have a Vishla we call Orange and she's a senior dog. And over the last couple of weeks, she has actually had more energy to be running around the backyard with the younger dog, the Doberman we call Brown. Or crazy. A little bit. (laughs) So if you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to BadlandsFood.com slash Killer D and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S. 
foodfood.com slash killer D. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. So on to the update for episode 81, Oscar Pistorius and Reva Steenkamp. On August 4th, 2012, history was made at the London Summer Olympics. In the opening heat of the men's 400 meter, one of the five runners was South African sprinter Oscar Pistorius, nicknamed Blade Runner. His nickname came from the carbon fiber prosthetics he used for competitions, and he was the first double amputee to compete in track events at the Olympic Games. Several months after the Olympics, in November of 2012, he began dating 29-year-old Reva Steenkamp, a model and commercial actress. Reva was soon living with Oscar at his home in a gated community in Pretoria, South Africa. In the early morning hours of Valentine's Day 2013, Pistorius called emergency services to send an ambulance, saying he mistook his girlfriend for an intruder and accidentally shot her. He was arrested for Reva's murder just two days after her death and went to trial just over one year later in March of 2014. The verdict came down six months after trial began and was delivered by the judge because there was no jury that Oscar was not guilty of murder, but was guilty of culpable homicide. One month later, he was sentenced to a maximum of five years with a concurrent three-year suspended prison sentence for reckless endangerment. Kath, I don't know if you remember this, but at the time, the judge was criticized several times because of how she seemed to be favoring Pistorius versus some of the prosecution witnesses. Totally. So you remember some of the prosecution witnesses were women. They had dated him. His anger and abuse was an issue that the prosecution had raised. And when they would start to get a little choked up, not a tear shed, because we were able to watch this online, the judge would look over and say, if you can't compose yourself, you'll have to step down. Yeah. And when Pistorius was on the stand, there were times when he was crying so hard that he was vomiting into yeah. a bucket. And the judge was overly solicitous to him on that end going, 
do you need some time? Do you need to go lay down? Can I get you a cold compress for your head? Yeah, exactly. I'm exaggerating. Do you want some chocolate? (laughs) (laughs) But at the time, that was an issue. And so when she comes out of what looked to observers to be nowhere with this culpable homicide and very short sentence, there was a lot of outrage, including Reva Steenkamp's family. Oh, yeah. After he was sentenced, Pistorius was then released on parole one year later after having served just one-sixth of his sentence. However, the state appealed the conviction, and in December of 2015, the Supreme Court of Appeal overturned the conviction for culpable homicide, finding Pistorius guilty of murder instead. In July 2016, the original judge resentenced Pistorius to six years in prison for murder. Now remember, the original sentence had been five. The state appealed again, this time for a longer sentence. The Supreme Court of Appeal then imposed a sentence of 15 years, reducing the amount of time he had to stay in jail to an additional 13 years and five months. In our original episode, episode 81, we give a lot more details about the crime and the trial. So if you're interested in hearing about the stuff we left out, we encourage you to go listen to the episode. So here's the update. According to an Associated Press article in USA Today, on Friday, April 1st, 2023, Pistorius was denied parole and was told he would have to stay in prison at least another year and four months. We actually did a, an Instagram post update on this. Do you think he asked the judge, is this an April Fool's joke? <laughs> <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> Probably don't have that in South Africa. The reason given for denying him parole was that it was determined that he had not served the minimum detention period required to be released following his murder conviction for the 2013 killing of Reva Steenkamp. The parole board hearing Pistorius' application ruled that he would have to stay in prison at least another year and four months and would be able to apply again in August of 2024. According to Associated Press journalist Gerald Imray, on September 20th, 2023, after being denied parole in April, he filed an appeal. The document contended that despite the court's ruling, Pistorius had been eligible for parole during the April hearing and the court had miscalculated when he actually began serving his sentence for murder. Therefore, his attorneys argued that Pistorius should immediately be declared eligible for parole. And it was never explained how there were different calculations on how much time he should spend in prison. It was a sufficient enough argument that the Justice and Correctional Services authorities submitted documents to the county's constitutional court saying they would not oppose the appeal. Two months later, so this is November 24, 2023, just over a month ago, the Department of Corrections announced that the now 37-year-old Pistorius will be released from prison on January 5, 2024, after serving nine years of his 15-year sentence. My niece is actually in South Africa as we're recording this. And so I asked my niece to talk to the folks she meets. They're staying with some of her friend's relatives. I'm sure they'll meet a lot of people on the different activities they encounter. And I said, just ask them, how do they feel about this happening? Especially because there was such an outcry not to allow him to be released and that he was denied in April. And then you fast forward until November and we find out that he's going to be released in a couple months. Mm hmm. And now he's actually going to be released in a couple days. Exactly. So anyways, I asked her to do just kind of a man on the street interview and come back to us with what the results are. So we will definitely let you all know what we hear from her. While out on parole, Pistorius is expected to live at his uncle's luxurious mansion. 
in a wealthy Pretoria suburb where he stayed during his murder trial. His parole will come with conditions, including that he does not leave the area of Pretoria without permission from authorities. Pistorius will also attend a program to deal with his anger issues and will have to perform community service. Pistorius will not wear a monitoring bracelet, as that is not part of South African parole procedures, and he will be required to adhere to his parole conditions for five years. Thus, his sentence will expire on December 5, 2029. Our next and final update that we're going to do today is episode 112, which was the case of Suzanne Morphew. So recapping, one afternoon in May of 2020, it was Mother's Day, one of Suzanne Morphew's teenage daughters contacted their neighbors in Salida, Colorado, and asked them to check on her mom. She and her sister were out of town and trying to get in touch with their mother to wish her a happy Mother's Day, but couldn't reach her. The Morphews lived in a fairly secluded seven-acre property that was very mountainous and adjacent to a national forest, so their neighbors weren't close. It wasn't like walking next door. They were off in the distance. The neighbors went over to the Morphew house to look for Suzanne and couldn't find her. Then they called her husband, Barry, who was 150 miles away on a construction site. He hadn't been able to get in touch with her either that day, but when he learned Suzanne wasn't answering their daughter's calls on Mother's Day, he was very worried that something bad might have happened. The neighbors called 911 and Chafee County Sheriff's deputies went out to investigate. One of the first things they did was ping Suzanne's phone, but they were told by the phone company that her phone was turned off. At around 7.30 that night, two deputies searching the area for Suzanne found her bike lying close to the bottom of a ravine. There were no indications of a crash or flattened vegetation where Suzanne might have fallen, and there was also no blood or damage to the bike that they could see. The day after Suzanne disappeared, Chafee County Sheriff's detectives conducted a phone interview with a woman who called herself Suzanne's best friend. The friend forwarded to the detective a text string between herself and Suzanne that had taken place months prior, and it was clear in the text string that Suzanne was stressed out. She said her husband was acting like Jekyll and Hyde, but he did not want a divorce. And the friend told detectives that she bought Suzanne a spy pen, which was designed to covertly record conversations. Fewer than 24 hours into the investigation, detectives appeared to be focused on Barry. Investigators obtained a search warrant to search the home, and they also seized Barry's truck. They also executed search warrants for, you know, iCloud accounts and vehicle data and, you know, various other things. There's a lot of stuff we talk about in the episode, so I encourage you to go back for the details. During this period of time, Barry never hired a lawyer, and he spoke with any investigator who questioned him, and it was estimated that he was interviewed by police about, I don't know, 30 to 40 times. A week after Suzanne went missing, Barry made a very impassioned video pleading for his wife's return, which of course was widely broadcast. He said he loved her and he missed her and the kids needed her and they would do whatever it took and pay any amount to get her back. Ten days after Suzanne went missing, sheriff's detectives found the spy pen that Suzanne's friend had told them about, and it revealed that Suzanne was actually having an affair. Suzanne's paramour had an alibi, and detectives were able to build a case against Barry. He was arrested on May 5, 2021, almost a year after Suzanne's disappearance. Bail was denied, and he sat in jail. There was no body, no blood, no murder weapon, and no eyewitnesses, 
but Barry was charged with first-degree murder, tampering with a deceased human body, tampering with physical evidence, possession of a dangerous weapon, and attempting to influence a public servant. Five months after Barry was arrested and placed in jail, a preliminary hearing was held, and the judge determined there was sufficient evidence against Barry Morphew to hold him over for trial. However, after testimony revealed that other male DNA was found in Suzanne's vehicle and on her bicycle, the judge decided to allow bail. Barry posted bond and was released in October 2021. Three months after he was released, the defense received over 23,000 pages of discovery, and much of it had not been disclosed to them previously. Contained within this discovery was the fact that DNA from Suzanne's glove compartment, bike, and bike helmet was a partial match with DNA from a male perpetrator linked to three sexual assaults. All three of the sexual assaults occurred outside of Colorado. Two were in the neighboring state of Arizona, and one was in Illinois. And I'm assuming, and it's just an assumption, that's because they don't know who this guy is. I would assume the same thing. Terrifying. Especially because, are there more sexual assaults out there? Of course. The prosecution was issued multiple discovery sanctions for not giving the defense court-ordered discovery. The judge wrote that the prosecution repeatedly missed deadlines and failed to turn over important documents during discovery. The defense argued that the case should be dismissed. However, the judge did not dismiss the case. The court found that the actions of the prosecutors were not willful, but did say they were negligent, bordering on reckless. The judge punished the prosecution by excluding 14 expert witnesses at trial. Then, just nine days before jury selection was supposed to start, the judge approved the prosecution's own motion to dismiss the case without prejudice, meaning they could refile it. Basically, Kath, the DA dismissed the case knowing there's no way they could win at trial. But what they told the public was that they were close to discovering Suzanne's body and needed more time. And I think, Kath, the person who actually made this public proclamation was Linda Stanley. The district attorney? Yes. Yeah, exactly. 17 months later, which would be September of 2023, Colorado investigators accidentally discovered Suzanne Morphew's body while looking for a different missing person. Suzanne's body was found in Moffitt, a small town of about 100 residents. It was found in a flat, scrubby field roughly 50 miles from where her bike was found. According to the coroner, Suzanne had been buried in a shallow grave and her bones had dispersed over the years. So fast forward, here we are with the update, and the district attorney is now in hot water. One month after finding Suzanne's body, so this is October 2023 now, the Office of Attorney Regulation Council filed a complaint against DA Linda Stanley, who was prosecuting the case, alleging that she exhibited multiple instances of prosecutorial misconduct. I can't even imagine being on the receiving end of this kind of investigation. Anyway, so the complaint first accused the district attorney of frequent communication with two hosts of two different YouTube true crime channels. Now, this was during the time the case was being investigated. Correct. It was while like, Suzanne Morphy was still missing. That's so nuts. What happened, Kathy, is that the district attorney had exchanged text messages with the hosts of these two podcasts. Which, by the way, wasn't us. But if it was back then, we would have been all, yeah. 
of course, the host didn't do anything wrong asking her to be on the show. No kidding. And I'm sure they were like, oh, my God, the DA actually returned my phone call or whatever. And you know? she wants to be here with me. Yeah, it's video. Oh, totally. So not only did she exchange text messages with them, though, she appeared on their shows and responded to comments that were posted on each of these YouTube channels using her real name. I don't even know what she was thinking. I don't think she was. I know, but you think, you you know, she'd have people around going, hey, you know what, Linda, this is not a great idea. It's an ongoing investigation. And as a district attorney and a lawyer for at least a couple of decades, you would think that common sense would just kind of fall in. Yeah. Uh, you know. Apparently not. In addition to the allegations, Kathy, about these YouTube channels, the complaint also alleged that DA Stanley failed to share discovery, which had been brought up by the defense including the DNA evidence that was a partial match and providing the defense with any sort of information in a timely manner, among other accusations of misconduct. The most significant allegation, Kath, which this really surprised me, was that District Attorney Stanley secretly launched an investigation into the judge who was presiding over the Barry Morphew trial and had issued a series of rulings against the district attorney. So basically like gee, I'm going to investigate him because what he did hurt my case. That's what it looks like. So Kath, basically what happened is the district attorney had learned about an online petition that was going around that had more than 2,000 signatures who wanted to remove Judge Lama from the Morphew case, citing a conflict of interest. The conflict was that... The conflict was that they didn't like his rulings. <laughs> well, they said his conflict, though, was that Judge Lama had abused his ex-wife that she was an advocate of Suzanne Morphew's and other victims of domestic violence. The reason this probably came up is that during the lead up to the trial, Judge Lama had ruled that during trial, the prosecution would not be allowed to bring up allegations of domestic violence against Barry Morphew. District Attorney Stanley said that that was when she decided to contact Judge Lama's ex-wife to see if there was any merit to the claims raised in the petition. Kath, she also tried to get different law enforcement agencies to look into the allegations in this petition. So where is this petition? Do you have any idea? I read somewhere it was a change.org petition, but you and I both looked it up and couldn't find it there. Don't know if it's been taken down since, but there's so many petitions that could be circulating out on... Out on the Google, out on the internet. That I don't know exactly where it was from. I couldn't find it. So the Chafee County Sheriff's Office, which is the agency that was investigating Suzanne Morphew's disappearance, she approached them as well. And they said, um, you don't have a good source to warrant any sort of investigation. So peace out. Wait a second. Are you telling me that people who live in their parents' basement and have nothing better to do than post crap online shouldn't be paid attention to? <laughs> well, that's my opinion. I was going to say no offense. Yeah. I'm just kidding. <laughs> We're in California. We don't have basements. I'm good. Oh, my God. In District Attorney Stanley's response, she actually admitted to the fact that she was investigating Judge Lama and said she did it because he ruled against her in court. But Kathy, this was funny. There was an interview done with her with KRDO News in Colorado, and she's sitting in her office. Now, all of you know that I used to work in politics and I was the spokesperson for most of these offices. And so the first thing you do when you sit them down with an interviewer is you make sure if there's a camera involved, that everything is staged perfectly. You want to make sure that there's nothing there that would look funny or stupid or is the wrong color or is not erudite enough, all of that. 
but the district attorney is sitting in her office and there's files everywhere, which is appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. She doesn't need to have a clean desk. Right. But there's a sign right next to her that says, we'll trade legal advice for tacos, which is funny. (laughs) But not when you're being interviewed. About a case that's so serious. That is too funny. I was very surprised to see that. And clearly she doesn't have somebody looking out for her. Yeah. And it is an elected office. Yeah. In response to the accusations of these ethical violations, District Attorney Stanley basically said, there's no evidence that these situations prejudice the administration of justice. Although attorney regulation raises the claim, there is not a single word of supporting evidence or analysis provided to support it. Her interviews and actions were not used in any way to influence or intimidate the court or anyone else associated with the case. I am so curious to see how these things play out. As we mentioned in our actual episode, Barry Morphew has filed a federal lawsuit against a number of people, including Including District Attorney Stanley, exactly, alleging that he was stuck in jail for four months because they weren't giving exculpatory evidence. Right. So I'm really curious to see how the federal lawsuit plays out, but I'm also very curious to see what this ethics committee does with any issues related to the late discovery. Okay, that's the end of our story. Next week brand new episode. Hope everybody's recovering from their New Year's Eve. And if you're missing a brand new episode, Patreon has three there just waiting for you. And if you go to the second or third tier, you get bloopers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Those are pretty, you know, funny. It's us being us. We laugh as we put them together. So we're hoping everybody else is laughing too. Exactly. Happy 2024. Hope it's a good one for all of you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.